Luke 23, picking up at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to a place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divide up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for what we are getting, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. I wonder if you've had the experience of uh, hearing about a talk that was going to be given, and you saw it and you thought, that title looks really, really interesting. It's a subject that I'd really like to know more about. And you went along to talk, and you sat there for 40, 50 minutes, an hour maybe perhaps, and you got to the end of the talk, and you thought, that speaker just made a subject that was very simple, very complicated. Because as you left, you thought, well, I know less about it than I thought I did for the beginning, or certainly I'm more confused about it than I was uh, before I came along. I guess part of what's behind that kind of a reaction is that in all kinds of areas of life, we want to know the center of something. We want to know summarize really clearly what something is all about. And sometimes that's possible. And sometimes in defense of the complicated talk, it is just complicated. (laughs) And that's okay. But maybe you're here today, and your big question is, what is Christianity all about in a nutshell? Maybe it's your first time here, you've been brought along, you're a guest, you're a visitor, we're delighted you're with us, particularly on this day as we celebrate our church anniversary. But maybe you've been here for some time, and maybe you've listened a lot, and you've heard lots of things, much of which has been good, I trust. But really you wonder, well, what is it all about? What's the center of the message of the Bible, of the message of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, this morning we're going to look at the latter part of the reading 
that John read for us earlier on in Luke chapter 23. As we come together in verses 44 to 49 of Luke chapter 23, and we look at the center, the final hours, we might say, of Jesus' life, we focus in on some of his final words, and these few hours allow us to see what is really at the center of the Christian message. What is at the center of what the Bible teaches about from beginning to end that the Lord Jesus came to declare to this world? Because Christianity is all about Christ, isn't it? And the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is really at the center of the Christian message. And what I want us to do is is look together at verses 44 through to verse 49 of our reading and notice three things that teach us three central ideas that I trust and pray will help us to grasp something of the kernel, something of the center of the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to bring to the world. So let's look first of all at what is the darkness there that is laid out for us in Luke chapter 23. And the darkness here that we're going to observe as Jesus dies on the cross for those three hours, the darkness shows us that Jesus is paying for our sins on the cross. The darkness shows that Jesus is paying for our sins on the cross. Because if you have a Bible, look down at me at verse 44 of Luke chapter 23, and we read these words. It was now about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So we have this astonishing account of the darkness for three hours that, as Jesus died, came upon the land. Now, as some people look at this, they think that it was an eclipse. But that is not possible. It's not possible for two reasons. First of all, because we know historically from the accounts of Jesus' life that when Jesus died, it was a time of the Jewish Passover. And the Jewish people always celebrated a Passover on the occasion of a full moon, which means you can't have a solar eclipse going on because the sun and the moon are in the wrong places. But also notice the darkness lasts for a duration of three hours. Now, no eclipse lasts that long, does it? They last just for a few minutes. So what is going on? Well, in verse 45, it's uh, described for us in the sense of the sun stops the sun stopped shining that god in some astonishing supernatural way in that place put out the lights in the heavens in that sense now i don't know anyone here who's experienced an eclipse put your hand up if you have okay most of us here i I was thinking back to last time i experienced an eclipse i think it was when i was in my mid to late teens i was in dorset and I remember being inside the house and, and my parents saying, Matthew, come outside, the eclipse is about to happen. I'm thinking, oh, it's not going to be that exciting. I'll just do whatever I'm doing inside the house. But they said, no, come out, come out. So I came out and you step outside and it's the most odd thing. It's, well, it's almost eerie, isn't it? It has a sense of being unreal. It, it feels wrong and it feels wrong because... It goes from light to darkness so quickly, and we're used to, aren't we, that happening gradually. 
but also it happens at entirely the wrong time in the day, and our bodies aren't ready for it because we've got rhythms and we're wired for those things. Now, we know the darkness here is not an eclipse, but there is a sense as we think about what it's like to stand and experience an eclipse that we get a sense of, of perhaps just the wrongness that the people there would have felt just in the atmosphere of what was around them. It was stark. It lasted for three hours. But it has a very specific purpose. Because in the Bible, darkness is a picture of judgment. Now, as a church family, we've been working through the book of Exodus. And we spent some time working through the the ten plagues that came there upon Egypt. And, of course, the ninth plague there is the plague of darkness, For three days, there is this darkness that comes upon Egypt, and it's a sign of God's judgment upon Egypt. Elsewhere in the Bible, in the book of Joel, in Joel chapter 2 and verse 10, there's a description of a day that is described as the day of the Lord's. And it says there, it is a dreadful day. That's a true use of the word dreadful. It's a serious, a solemn day, and we read, the sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars, the stars no longer shine. So in the Bible, God uses darkness to picture judgment. And you might say, as someone has here, that in the darkness, God is showing that hell is coming down upon that very hill. Now, as I've said that, you might wonder, well, hang on, Matthew, Jesus is dying on the cross. He is there dying on that hill. Why is it that Christ Jesus is experiencing judgment? He is going through hell in that sense. And that's a a fair question to ask because whilst the criminals who are crucified there are being executed for wrong that they have done, Jesus, well, he has done nothing wrong. We look at verse 47 and we see the centurion, this soldier responsible for the executions, looks on upon Jesus' death and he says, surely this was a righteous man. And that statement about Jesus' life, that he is righteous, that he is, he is a, a, a pure man, matches what we know of Jesus' life, as, as Tim reminded us earlier on. He, he spent three years of his life in public And no one found anything to fault anything he did or said. That's incredibly striking when you think about it. You know, we're used to public figures who get some kind of a public profile that means that we see that they have flaws. Now, now nowadays, we have spin doctors and we have image consultants, and they do a great job of hiding some of the flaws of the people they're paid to protect. (laughs) But ultimately, we all know, don't we? It might take longer but eventually, character flaws come out. But as you look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, you find no flaws in his life. When he was captured and he was tried, he had multiple trials. Pilate's words, as Tim said, were, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But not only that, you'd say, okay, well, <clears throat> they, were, uh, they were the authorities, the charges were being brought by Jesus' enemies, But who would know Jesus Christ best? 
Well, if we know our lives, who knows us best? The people we spend the most time with, our friends and our family. Jesus had 12 disciples, spent three years with the Lord Jesus, examined his life in detail. They confirmed, knowing him best, it was perfect. Because there is nothing wrong in Jesus' life that warrants judgment. So why then is there darkness signifying judgment at the cross? Well, the Bible tells us in this verse, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God made him, that is Jesus Christ, who had no sin in his perfection, to be sin for us. That's the reason for the darkness, friends. It is that God is present in his judgment, and that judgment is being poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ because he, on the cross, is dying not for his own sins, but for the sins of those who will believe in his name. The one who had no sin became sin. He took our sin if we believe in him so that we might know forgiveness. It's a striking thing when you think about that. I mean, I'm not someone who's into social media. If you try and search me on social media, I think I'm on one social media platform. But some of us are on a lot of social media. And so much of life is lived on social media. And on social media, you can choose what others can see that's up there. But I want you to imagine just for a moment as we think uh, about what it means that Jesus took our wrongdoing and our sin. Imagine there's a new social media platform. Now, I don't have a lot of time to come up with this, but I've come up with this name, my social media platform, and it's called Insta Everything. Okay? I've publicly copyrighted that now. So it's Insta Everything. Okay? And what does it mean? Well, it means this, that every action, every word, and every thought is recorded. The whole lot. There are no privacy guards where you can select which group of people get to see it, and you can say, just them, not them. And there are no approval tracks where you can say, I want that post up and not that one. It's the whole lot, friends. Insta everything. Who's signing up? Well, as we look at it, we would know there's some great things on there and some good things on there. But there's also going to be some, some things on there that we wish we would have a delete button to get them off. And the Bible says that those things that we do wrong, where we break the law of God, as Sam was explaining, God's commandments of how we should live in his world, as we break his law, those are the wrong things that we do. That's what the Bible means when it talks of sin. And breaking God's law means that we deserve judgment. But friends, at the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus took the sins of his people. He became sin for us. And he was punished for those sins. And that's why there is darkness here on the hill where the Lord Jesus dies. And notice how serious the judgment is. 
In our day, some people are entertained by violence, and so they go and they play video games or they watch films. But back then, there weren't those things. So those who wanted to be entertained by violence would gather to see the spectacle of an execution, sometimes for entertainment. And we read in verse 38, if you look down there, at some of the people who were there, we read, when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Now that is astonishing to read that because crucifixions were common. The Romans used it as a way of making a public example of a kind of criminal they wanted people to know that they were not to copy. They were an instrument of fear of the state, of control in that sense. So people were used to seeing crucifixions, but as people saw Jesus dying, they were so shocked, they beat their breasts and they turned away. Now, why is that? It is because the sufferings of the Lord Jesus on the cross are beyond description. And all we get here is the people's reaction to them. Such is the seriousness and the horror of what Christ goes through. You know, almost 20 years ago, Mel Gibson um, produced a film called The Passion of the Christ. I've never seen it, but when it was first released, there was quite a reaction to it because of the vivid portrayal of Christ's suffering and death. But however vivid that film was, you could not capture what was going on there at the cross, what was the most shocking part. Because it wasn't just the physical torture of crucifixion itself, friends. That was horrible, but it was so much more. The suffering that came upon the spotless Lamb of God as he hung on the tree was the punishment that we deserve for our sins. The physical, spiritual, emotional punishment that we should all face in hell laid on him so that those who believe it's been dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the load that Jesus bore when he died on the cross. And friends, in the darkness, God is showing us judgment falling upon Christ for our sins. But there's a second thing to see. We've seen that the darkness shows us that Christ is suffering for our sins. But then second, we see the torn curtain shows us that a full payment has been made. If we have that sense of, as we've been singing about, of the greatness of God, the, 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 in the right sense of the word, the awesomeness of the God of heaven, the holiness of the God of heaven, the majesty of the God of heaven, if we, if we have a sense of that and we know something of ourselves and our lives and the wrong things that we have done and said and thought... A right response to that is, how could I ever know this God? How could I ever hope 
to call him my father, to come into his presence, to to sing to him, to pray to him, to know him personally in that sense. Well, the, the message of the torn curtain shows us that Jesus' death was enough. It's a great thing. That the, if I can use it, the destruction of that piece of furniture in the temple is the best news in all the world. Now, why? Well, let's just note how it's described. Look down at verse 45. Having read the sun stop shining, we get this fascinating detail, and it's so important that three of the four gospel writers all record it, because they move from the hill outside of Jerusalem, where Jesus is suffering and dying, to the center of the city of Jerusalem, which is the temple, And not just that, the center of the whole Jewish system of of worship and religious life, which is the temple. And there we read that in this temple, the curtain, the temple curtain was torn in two. Now, to understand the significance of that, we need to know more about the temple in the Old Testament and there in Jerusalem. Because a temple was, the temple was designed by God to communicate two big things. First of all, God is holy. The holiness of God was being portrayed in all the different aspects of the temple. I've just finished reading about it in the book of Exodus and in Leviticus, and it's astonishing. All the the gold and the beauty and and the brilliance in that sense of the place, and it's all there communicating the the, the mighty, the the holiness and and the glory of God. So God is holy, and then secondly, it's communicating your sin means that you cannot draw near to this holy God. Because again and again, in different ways in the temple, there are means of separation between different people, but crucially, and this is what we're going to zone in on here, between all people and God. Last week, a friend uh, took us to the Etihad Stadium in Manchester and went on the tour. It was quite an experience. And, and it struck me afterwards that there are lots of ways in which separation is being communicated and occurring there in the Etihad Stadium. So you can go along to the Etihad Stadium and pay, I don't know how much ticket is, £100 at least, I imagine, to go and see a game. You can be a fan. You can... Cheer on from the stands, but there is plenty of separation between you and the footballers. I think there are two uh, different uh, advertising electronic boards you've got to get over to try and get close. There are stewards who are, well, they're, they're trained, aren't they, to stop you from getting there to the footballers if you have a go. I'd love to see what the training session looks like, but they're trained, I'm sure, to do so. So there's gaps in the pitch, but not just that. There's a tunnel so that when the players come out, they're protected, they're separated there from the fans. And then there's all those elements. But it's, and there are some types of people who can get a bit closer. So if you pay the big bucks and you get a VIP hospitality ticket, you can join what they call the tunnel club. And there you get to sit a bit closer to the dugout. You know, you can almost... You can almost touch, reach out and touch Pep when he's there, sat on his manager's seat. 
when the players walk in with the manager and you're sat there you know, enjoying the hospitality, they walk past you and you can hold out your hand, they give you a high five. But even then there's stewards, even then there's barriers. It's all about separation. And the temple was about separation too. And it was about separation between the people and God. All to communicate that sin means we can't draw near to a holy God. So there was a place in the temple called the most holy place. And the most holy place was where God that God was, was said to dwell, and, and there's that sense of, in communicating, God's not confined by space, is he? But to communicate that message, that was what was taught, that, that God was, was there in that sense. It was the closest you could get in that sense. And everywhere else, the people couldn't go. And this huge curtain that we're talking about here separated the rest of the temple and all different aspects from the most holy place where God was. Even the priests having sacrificed multiple times, were only allowed into that holy place to perform a single sacrifice on the Day of Atonement once a year. Such was the holiness of this great God of heaven and the sinfulness of people. But then notice at the end of verse 45, that is why that is so significant, friends, that at the end of Jesus' suffering, just before his death, the temple curtain is torn to tell us what Jesus' death has achieved for all who will believe. Because in his death, Jesus has taken our sin. He has paid our punishment. So what? Well, here's so what. It means we can draw near. It means that the separation between God and people, for those who believe, is gone. So we can draw near, we can know God closely, we can know God personally. Friends, this is one of the most important aspects of understanding what is going on at the cross. And that's why there is this jump from the hill at Calvary to the temple, because it's so significant to see this. Because it means, friends, that if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, it means that before the God of heaven, we can have a clear conscience. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14 says, The blood of Christ can cleanse our consciences. Now, I brought some uh, books to give away today. Um, they're on the table on the way out on the left as you head out there in the entrance area. And I was reading this one yesterday from Roger Carswell, Three Days That Changed the World. If you'd like one, grab one on the way out. They're free to take. But I read it yesterday, and it reminded me of a story that I've heard before. And of course, it's always the case with the great stories, isn't it? You've heard them all before. And it's a wonderful story that brings out just the the wonderfulness of a clear conscience. Because Roger tells a story that he heard from somebody else of a Russian officer who had a massive debt. And he feared what it would mean for his future. He had no way of paying it off, however hard he worked. And one night, he was working through his personal accounts in his tent. And he was totaling up all the debt that he had. And in despair, he wrote these words, Who can pay so great a debt? And he fell asleep there on his desk. Now, it just so happened that evening that the Tsar of Russia, the Emperor of Russia, was out visiting his men. And he came into this officer's tent, and he looked at the officer who'd fallen asleep there on the desk. 
I thought, I wonder what he was doing before he went to sleep and went over and looked there at the accounts and read his words. Who can pay so great a debt? He looked at the figures and he said this. He wrote this. I, even I, Alexander. The emperor had just cleared that huge debt for the officer. Friends, we all know we've done wrong. I don't think deep down any of us needs convincing of that. We've spoken words we wish we could have taken back. We've lived days that we wish we could have restarted and lived again. We've had thoughts that we wish we could erase from our minds. Jesus Christ has come and lived and died to clear your debts, if you will believe. So that you may have no guilt in life. So that you may know no fear in death. So that even though those words and those days and those thoughts are real, they're paid. They're gone. They're dealt with. And not only a clear conscience, the knowledge that no further payment is needed. How might that officer have felt when he woke up and read the emperor's words? How would you have felt? I think if we're honest, most of us would feel something like, thank you, but what can I do to make it up? Maybe I can't repay it in full, but what can I do to make it up? And in many ways, it can be the same with God, because when people hear of all that the Lord Jesus has done for those who believe, we can think, well, I need to do something to make it up. And you know what? The temple curtain torn tells you and I that no further payment is needed. The debt's gone. It's really gone. We're not... This isn't a nice story that may have happened or may not have happened. It doesn't really matter. This really happened. If you were stood there in a temple, the curtain really was torn. It means that Jesus' death is always enough today and forever. There's no further sacrifice, no ongoing payment. There's a story told of a man who loved Rolls-Royce cars. And he loved them so much that he saved up money over years to be able to buy one Rolls-Royce car. And when he got the car, he loved it. He loved the car. He only took it out if it wasn't raining. Cleaned it once a week. Cleared the garage of all the junk so he'd get it undercover. And then one day it broke down. And he panicked. He thought, I can barely afford this car. I've just afforded it. How am I going to afford the repair for a Rolls Royce? So he called them out because he had to. They came to fix it, they dealt with it, 
It was all done. The car returned, and he waited for the bill to land. And nothing came. So he phoned them up, and he said, well, uh, you fixed my car. It's working again. Thank you so much, but I, I've not received the bill. And they said to him, sir, we have no record of any of our vehicles ever breaking down. They'd erased it. No record. It's just the same for the sins of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's erased. It's forgiven. Because the the temple curtain was torn in two, that sets you free, friends. I want you to see the freeness of this. It means that you are free from a relentless duty to do and do and do that is taught by other religions. That is not true. It means you are free from the pressure to achieve and achieve and achieve that you're told you have to do in school and in university and in work. Because you are free from the call that we hear all around ourselves to make our lives count. Because if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, eternity has been secured. There is nothing left to do. It is all done. And that's the most important thing in all the world. So you can rest in the joy of being right with God. You can rejoice in full forgiveness. And you can revel in the joys of knowing God without guilt. Because the temple curtain is torn. Second thing. Now thirdly, and finally, as we come to Jesus' final prayer. And Jesus' final prayer tells us the relationship with the Father has been restored. And here we look at verse 47, where we read that Jesus says in his final prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Now, there are seven sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and Luke records three of them for us. We read all three in our reading. We heard his plea for forgiveness for the crowd who mock and mistreat him as he's there going to the cross and on the cross. We, we heard the words of promise there to the thief who believes, where Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the third that Luke records is there in verse 46, marking Jesus' death. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, it's very significant that Jesus speak these having, speaks these words having gone through his suffering. And so he addresses God, you'll notice here, as his father. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that is important because in the midst of Jesus' suffering on the cross, other gospel writers tell us that he cried out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's in Mark and in Matthew. And that's significant that in that moment he refers and addresses God as my God, but he doesn't use the word Father. Now right through Jesus' earthly life, he has addressed God as his Father. When he prays to God, he says, Father. 
But as he suffers on the cross, in the midst of his suffering, he doesn't use that title. Instead, he says, my God, because as Jesus hangs there, he is bearing our sins, which means that in bearing our sins, the communion, you might say the the experience of his relationship to God as his father is affected because he goes through hell and judgment for us. But now, once his suffering is done and he is about to die, the title he comes back to is God as his father. And that is so significant, not least because it is a further confirmation that Christ's work is complete. Because he's addressed God as father through his life, he's been through his suffering and addresses God as my God. And then having been through that, he says again, father. So we're seeing that a full and a final, a complete payment has been made. But even But we might also add to that, it shows us more of what Jesus' death means to those who believe. Because as Jesus calls God now his Father, having completed that payment for our sins, we too are able to call God Father. We too can know the joy of a relationship with the God of heaven as our Father. Because our sin is gone. And notice also in those words, that final prayer, Jesus commits his spirit to God. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's very interesting that each of the four gospel writers seems unwilling to use the words, Jesus died. But instead, the way they describe the death of Jesus is phrases like, he breathed his last, or He gave up his spirit. And that language is deliberate because what we're being told there is that Jesus is controlling even his own death. He gives up his spirit. He commits it to his father. Because for us, Death is an event that we cannot control. It comes to us. It takes us. And unless we do something, we cannot choose exactly when our death happens. But for the Lord Jesus Christ, he is even in control of his death. He commits his spirit to his Father because he is no mere man as he suffers on the cross. He is the God-man. And as God, he is in control of his own death. So if we were to jump to John's gospel in chapter 10, we would read Jesus say this of his death. I lay down my life only to take it up again, speaking of his resurrection. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So Christ has power over his own death. And that is significant, friends, because it shows us the hope that we can have in our own death. We cannot control when death comes. Someone has said that we are as helpless on the day of our death as we are on the day of our birth. But just because we are helpless doesn't mean we are hopeless. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has conquered death. He rules over his own death. He died. 
He rose again from the dead and he lives forever now. So that for those who trust him as saviour, they can know peace in death. Why? Because in death we return to our Father with whom we live forever. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that there is a huge fear of death in our culture. We are so afraid of it that we won't even name it. And so we speak of someone who passes. Or the one who has died as departing. Or we might say they have left us. I think unhelpfully so. There are times when we even want to deny the reality of death. And so we're encouraged to think of those who have died as still being here. But they're not. Because we can visit their graves and be reminded of it. Friends, death is a horrible thing. Death, the Bible says, is the last enemy. But Jesus Christ has conquered death. And in that final prayer of Jesus, Jesus shows us that eternity is secure for those who believe. That the relationship with the Father for him and for all those who believe has been restored. Because... He suffered in the darkness bearing our sins. Because the temple was torn, so access is now open. So that any and all who will come and trust him as Lord and Saviour may enter in. May God give us grace to do that and to keep doing it.